Well, this morning we're continuing our look at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be toward the end of Mark chapter 8. So if you take your Bibles and turn there with me, we're going to be talking about this idea of setting our minds on the things of God. So we're in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 27, and I'm going to read down to verse 33, and we'll pause there. Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 27, this is what it says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. Thank you for the instruction that we receive from it, for the counsel that we receive from it, from the insight that you give to us as we look at what your word contains. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at these things. And we pray, Father, that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us here. We pray that your spirit would accomplish his work of revealing these truths to our hearts and helping us to live these things out as he empowers us to do so. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little over 20 years ago, I began a five-year experience that involved directing a Christian camp and conference center, the Pocono Mountain Bible Conference. Several of our staff members are here, which is really exciting. Um, I had the privilege to work there as a teenager, camp there as someone who was growing up. It was one of the hardest things I ever agreed to do, but I'm also grateful for all the lessons that the Lord taught me all along the way through that experience. It was a a very beneficial experience on, on many levels, but one lesson that He taught me during that time was not to be surprised when you encounter people who, out of one corner of their mouths, profess to be committed Christians and then out of the other corner of their mouth demonstrate just how deep their allegiance to the things of this world really runs. And I remember this stood out to me in particular when it was time to hire a summer staff every year. It was always during this time of year that we were thinking about that and kind of taking care of those details. In fact, the process would typically begin early in the month of January, and we would usually finish it up sometime around the month of April. So you have that several-month stretch of trying to put together a summer staff, And I will never forget, I remember it it stood out to me so much, this was almost exactly 20 years ago, but I'll never forget how I felt when I witnessed several of our staff who wanted to return to continue serving in that ministry, but a couple siblings, I remember when they were prevented by their father the one year because he wasn't convinced that they would make enough money serving at the camp. And so he prevented his children from continuing to serve in the ministry and and he made them get jobs in a local grocery store. Now, I appreciate grocery stores. I grew up 
working in a grocery store. My father owned a grocery store. That was very much part of my life. But I remember at that point just thinking, you know, for this like several month stretch, you can't just let them work here. You can't let them, you just can't let them do it. Like, and, and he wouldn't let them do it. And uh, they were, I remember they were so, so, so disappointed. And at the end of the summer, those siblings filled me in on how it went because they wanted to be there serving in the ministry during the course of that summer. They weren't allowed to do so. And unfortunately, not only did they miss out on the, the ministry opportunity that they wanted very much to be invested in, but they told me they also actually ended up with less income than they would have received if they had been allowed to work in that context because the store never actually gave them the hours that it promised it was going to give them. And so they went throughout the summer not only able to serve in the ministry they felt called to serve in, but also unable to earn the income that they were hoping to earn. And I remember looking at their situation. It's always stuck in my head. It's been a long time now, but I, I still remember that circumstance because their situation troubled me because while, and those who know me well know that I mean this, I do think that it's important to teach your children how to earn an income, how to steward an income. I, I very much care about those things. I think it's very important uh, to teach biblical stewardship of finances, and that's something we talk a lot about in my household. But I also think it's very, very important, more important, in fact, to teach your children what it looks like to take steps of faith and to walk through doors that the Lord opens up for you, even if that costs you something even if that may mean earning less in a particular context. And I think that that's something that's very hard for people to see because many people, and we've all done this as well, so we won't point the finger really at anyone else but ourselves, but the truth is this is the common thing. Many people set their minds on earthly things. We've done it. Other people do it. It's very easy to do that. And what, what's one of the primary values that this world emphasizes? This world values the acquisition of wealth at all costs. And because that's the case, that's a primary concern that a lot of people think about. And then you look at a portion of Scripture like we're looking at today from Mark chapter 8, and we realize from this portion of Scripture and from the ones immediately preceding it that when Jesus interacted with his disciples, their worldly priorities would often get exposed. You actually see this happening chapter by chapter in the early chapters of Mark. Their worldly priorities start getting exposed. And what we discover is that before their faith was truly tested, and before their faith truly matured, they showed repeatedly how much they valued the typical things that most people on this planet idolize. Well, what are those typical things? Well, in this world, we idolize comfort, right? It's one of the biggies. We idolize comfort. We idolize full bellies. We see that even as they were debating how to get more bread and where their next meal was going to come from and all of those things, even as they were hanging out with Jesus, whom they had just seen twice miraculously feed thousands of people, and yet they're worried about bread. They also worried about power. They also worried about prestige. These are things that even come up as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark, and look at the other Gospels as well, these are the typical things that people in this world value, and these were typical things that the disciples, at least at this point, were valuing. And so in Mark chapter 8, when we look at verses 27 through 33, we're actually going to watch Jesus confront these idols in dramatic fashion. And he does so very specifically and uh, very articulately. And uh, if you look at Mark chapter 8, starting with uh, verse 7, uh, he says this here, he says, or excuse me, the scripture tells us this, it says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Now, the interesting part about where we're at in the Gospel of Mark is that this portion of Scripture is essentially the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark. We're essentially right here at the halfway point in this chapter. Prior to this passage, before we get to this particular passage, verse 27 and beyond, the emphasis has actually been on the teaching and the miracles that Jesus was doing that caused his name to be known among the people and also caused his name to be despised among the religious elite. That's what we've seen up to this point. We've watched Jesus heal people. We've watched Jesus free people from demonic possession. We've watched uh, Jesus miraculously feed people. We've even seen Jesus raise the dead to life, take people from near death to restoration, all of these things. And his name is becoming known among the people. Far and wide, people are talking about him. Even when he goes into Gentile areas, the Gentile areas also know his name. And up to this point, you could see his name becoming widespread in the villages, in the communities, in the region. People would flock to him if they saw him and his disciples. They would start gathering up their ill. They would gather up their sick. They just wanted to to get anywhere near Jesus that they could possibly get near to him. And at the same time, you have the religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, looking at Jesus and despising him. They were sick of hearing his name because his name was supplanting their good names. People cared more about what Jesus had to say and what Jesus was going to do than than they cared about what these religious leaders said or did. In fact, these religious leaders were so interested in praise that they they loved to be in public And they loved to be dressed for the part because they absolutely wanted people to show them attention. They loved to give long and flowing prayers in public context because they wanted people to admire how eloquent they were. There were all sorts of things going on like this. And so when they heard the name of Jesus, they despised him. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like what he was saying. And they particularly didn't like the attention he was getting that was being taken away from them and the fact that he was willing to to confront them because he wasn't willing to put up with their false teaching and their hard-heartedness. And now you have Mark's gospel transitioning toward Christ's mission to actually die on the cross to atone for our sin. So you have the miracles, and you have the teaching, and you have the parables, all this being emphasized up to this point, but now we're going to see this, this gradual shift in focus as Jesus begins preparation for his crucifixion. Now, during this season of his ministry, as his name has been widely disseminated, people start speculating about Christ's identity. They want to know who this guy is. They're seeing the miraculous things that he's doing. They're listening to his teaching and recognizing that he's teaching with authority. And people are saying, who is this guy? And there's all sorts of debates. All sorts of theories were floating around. And so Jesus asked his disciples, hey, what are you guys hearing? When you talk to people, when you interact with people, when people ask you questions about me, what are they asking about? Who do people say that I am? Who do they think I am? So he asked them this, and they reply to Christ with some of the prominent theories. And they say, all right, well, some of the most prominent theories that people are floating around, some think you're John the Baptist. Now, at this point, John the Baptist is deceased. Uh, He's been beheaded because of his willingness to to be a prophetic voice and actually confront leadership over over their embrace of sin. 
And so uh, John the Baptist at this point has been executed. Um, and some people think, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's like a return of John the Baptist. Other people think maybe he's the prophet Elijah, who was taken up to heaven. When you look at 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah was taken up to heaven without experiencing physical death. And so some people think, all right, maybe he's the return of Elijah. And so that was a going theory. And then in general, other people were like, I don't know, he's got to be one of the prophets. If he's not, if he's not John, the Baptist, John the Baptist, if he's not Elijah, he's got to be one of the prophets. So these are the going theories that people in the, the region are starting to debate. And uh, it's interesting to, to read about Jesus asking this question of his disciples because speculation about who Jesus is, it continues to this day, doesn't it? Even in the day that we live in, right? I recently actually had the opportunity to watch a series of on-the-street interviews with people about this very subject. That is a fascinating thing to watch, to just have people with a microphone go up to somebody on a sidewalk and ask people, who do you think Jesus is? And you get all kinds of interesting answers. There's all sorts of videos of this now that have been populated online. And so I was watching some of them recently. I found it fascinating. I thought it was interesting because people had all sorts of theories that they suggested even in our present day. So it wasn't just during Christ's earthly ministry that people debated this. People debate that just as much now. Some people, as they were asked that question, were very complimentary of him. So you'd have people saying, yeah, I mean, powerful teacher, very insightful the epitome of kindness, the perfection of love. You would, you would hear certain things like that, certainly nice. Other people had derogatory things to say about Jesus, about who they thought he was, and then others seemed dismissive of his existence. Some people didn't. There was one lady in particular in one of the interviews that uh, I noticed. Somebody asked her, um, who do you think Jesus is? And she looked at the interviewer and she said, was and, uh, and he said, was? Uh, and she said, was. Not is, was. What's she indicating? I don't think that he's a continual presence. And then she went on to say, I, I don't even think you know, that, I, or I guess it was the next person after, or the person after said, I don't even think that he's real. So you have people debating all sorts of things, even in our present day. But Christ's identity, when you think about it, is something all of us have to wrestle with at one point or another. We, we eventually have to wrestle with that same question. Who is Jesus? And this is the question now Jesus goes from talking about the crowds and what the people say, he's now about to pose that same question as like a second part of his question to the disciples. When you look at verse 29 of Mark 8, it goes like this, and he, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? So that's an interesting moment, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? This is what they're all saying but who do you say that I am? And so it tells us Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now at this point, again, that was what he was saying. Listen, it's not the time for this to be publicly revealed. The time for it to be publicly revealed came, and for us, our charge is to tell everyone about him. But at this point, he said, pause just for a moment. Pause for a moment. Don't tell everybody about me yet. But Peter gives this answer. He says, you are the Christ. Now, the scriptures leading up to this passage made it very obvious that the disciples still had an immature understanding of Christ's identity. 
we tend to think of the, uh, of the disciples, the, the ones that became apostles, we tend to think of them as the epitome of spiritual maturity because we know how their story continues and how their story progresses from here. But at this season, Scripture is very clear to say that they wrestled with hearts that were hard. Their hearts were hard toward many of the important spiritual matters that Christ was trying to reveal to them. It's like they were very dull at this point. So can you imagine spending all that time with Jesus and still not getting it? Although, ironically, how many of us have testimonies where we were brought up in the context of the church? Maybe even your parents were strong believers. They always brought you to be around things that, that proclaim the name of Jesus, but it wasn't until a little bit later in life when it finally clicked. So when we look at this sort of things, this sort of thing, many of us can testify, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to pick on them because I sort of did the same thing. And at this point, their hearts were frequently hard toward important spiritual matters. And I think that that makes Peter's reply here particularly interesting. It's very interesting when you think about how he replies, because they don't have a pattern for getting these things right. In fact, they have a pattern for putting their foot in their mouth over and over again, particularly Peter. And again, I love bringing this up, Peter was Mark's main source for this gospel. So anytime you see something negative about Peter, understand it was Peter himself who told Mark, put that in there which I think demonstrates some humility at a later season of his life where he's not just trying to make himself look good. He's like, put all the dumb things I said and, and all the things I goofed up, put it all in, in there. Now, at this part, he gets something right. And he says, you know, Peter answers him, you are the Christ. He says, you are the Christ. And I think that that's very interesting that Peter replies that way because up to this point, you see a lot of spiritual dullness but when Jesus asked his disciples who they believed him to be, Peter, who would often speak on behalf of the group, so this could have been, um, you know, Peter maybe even thinking that's what he was doing in that moment, speaking on behalf of everybody, or maybe, he, these, maybe it was only him that, that at this point was understanding these things, but he, he says that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, meaning that he believes that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. And when you look at Peter saying this, understanding the spiritual dullness that's been common among the disciples, I think one of the natural questions we might have when we look at that is, what prompted Peter to say this? Where did this even come from? When they were goofing so many things up, and their hearts were said to be hard, and they're arguing about bread, and they're arguing about all sorts of trivial things, and then he says something that is so deeply correct and deeply insightful where did this come from? What prompted Peter to say this, or how did he even know this answer? How did he know this answer when it seemed like the other people uh, around them and even the other people that they, they tended to travel with maybe didn't? Well, the same account in Matthew's gospel actually gives us a few additional details. When you look at Matthew chapter 16, it tells us this. So it gives us a little bit more of the conversation, and it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. By the way, trivia question. Um, what was Peter's dad's name? Jonah, right? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what that means, Bar-Jonah, right? Blessed are you, Simon. So you're going to win trivia somewhere. <laughs> Share your winnings with me because I, I helped you get there. But blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
And then Jesus specifically says, and this is the thing that we have to keep in mind, because it wasn't just, it wasn't like Peter became super smart in any given moment. There were spiritual realities taking place here. Jesus said, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's how Peter all of a sudden understands these things. That's how Peter's able to actually say this. Spiritual truth is spiritually perceived. That's what we're seeing take place here. It's an important life lesson for us as well. Peter did not naturally deduce the fact that Jesus is who he is. This was deeper level spiritual truth. This was something specifically that Jesus says, you know this because my Father revealed it to you. That's why you know it. You know it because it was made known to you. Now, why does that matter? Why is it useful and practical for us as present-day believers in Jesus Christ to look at this statement and think about it? You know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why is that useful for you and me? Well, have you ever considered why you believe and are convinced that Jesus is the Christ? You ever thought about that? Why do you believe that? Again, like we're in a context here where we're carving out time. Every Sunday morning, we gather together. I, I see some of you with young children. I know it is not easy for you to get out of the, your house, okay? It is not easy for you to get out of your house. I also know that the clocks are about to rob us about a, a, of an hour soon, right? That's a real fun Sunday, isn't it? You know? And you'll still be here. Why are you here? Well, we're here not because it's a social club, not because it's an obligation, but because there's delight in worshiping Jesus together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's delightful to carve out time where we do that. Why do we even value that? Why do we care about that? On my drive here to worship this morning, I I pass plenty of people who are doing all sorts of activities, working outside because it's a beautiful day, doing all sorts of things under the sun, prioritizing different things than what you chose to prioritize right now during this moment. Why do you care about who Jesus is? Why do you care about carving out time to worship him? Why do you make a point to wake your kids up and dress your kids up and bring them to church? It's the snacks in the lobby, isn't it? It's the snacks. I know what it is. We don't care. We'll bribe you to get here, whatever it takes, right? Um, by the way, it's so interesting. I, greet, I try and greet everybody as you come in. It's always so fascinating to me to see children. They, they walk in the door and immediately turn left to where the snack tables are, and they go toward it and scope it all out, right? And then you see the adults. The adults are a little more subtle, you know? They'll just kind of look at it and be like, oh, that looks delicious, but I will walk at a normal pace, right? <laughs> but why are we here? Why do we care? Well, have you ever... Have you ever really thought about why we believe what we believe? You ever thought about why this matters to us? When someone asks you the question, who is Jesus, why do you give the answer you give? Why do you give the answer you give? If you genuinely believe that He is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, Do you believe those things because you're smarter than other people? Or did the Holy Spirit reveal those truths to your heart while simultaneously opening up your eyes and opening up your ears and opening up your mind so that you could perceive and believe what he was revealing? It's the latter, isn't it? The Holy Spirit, he he made this known to us. 
He made this note. It's not that we're smarter than anybody, because we're not. We're in the same spot Peter was in. Spiritual truth is spiritually perceived. The reason we know this, we have to accept this with some humility, the reason we know and are convinced of these things is not because we're smarter than other people. It's because the Lord in His grace chose to make it known to us. Look at what Scripture tells us about this process that the Lord's bringing us through. In John 15, 26, Jesus said this, but when the Helper comes, so He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, He says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. So again, why do we answer the way we answer related to who Jesus is? If we answer with belief, why do we answer that? Because the Spirit of God bore witness about Him. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, convinced you and me of the truth of Jesus Christ. How about this? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, there he says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Same thing as what Peter experienced. The reason you and I even think about things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, hearts can't imagine, the reason you become convinced on those levels about all the things that God prepares for those who love Him is because God's revealed that to us through His Spirit. That's why we know these things. That's why we're convinced of these things. That's why we're perceiving these things. And, and I have to say, and I know you'd agree, what a blessing it is to have the truth of Jesus revealed to our hearts. What a blessing. I look at that and I'm like, Lord, why did, why did you show us so much grace? Why, did you, why do you allow us to hear these things? Why did you put us in a spot where we would hear and respond? Why did you allow us to be a generation of people that get to hear this or people who met people that took the time to explain the message of the gospel to us. Why is this, you know, why did many of us, our parents, when we were little, were the ones taking us to church? Why did my parents have that conviction to do that? An interesting thing, in, in my case, my dad didn't become a believer until right before I was a senior in college, and yet my family was always in church. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Why would you even convince an unbelieving man to be faithful to take his family to church? Why? It's because the Lord wanted us to hear. The Lord wanted him to hear too, right? And he did, and he responded later in life. What a blessing it is to have the truth of Jesus revealed to our hearts. What a blessing, right? And as recipients of this truth, we also have the privilege to be his ambassadors who partner together with him in making this truth known. This is something that's been entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Such a joy to be able to, to, to be asked the question to you, who is Jesus? And then to answer that with delight. But then you also have this take place right after this in Mark 8, verse 31. And it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So this is, what, this is the conversation right after Jesus has this conversation with, with these disciples. He starts teaching them that the Son of Man is going to suffer. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been teaching, for the most part, in parables. 
As we've been seeing this in the early portion of Mark's gospel, we see this in the other gospels as well. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing a lot of his teaching in parables. And so the disciples would oftentimes, especially when they had moments away from the crowd, they would oftentimes ask him follow-up questions. They, they wanted some clarity. Like, we just heard you say this to the crowd, but what exactly does this mean? Because we don't exactly understand what you're talking about. There were plenty of things they still struggled to understand, still plenty of things they struggled to accept. And so now the time had come for Jesus to begin teaching them. He had been preparing them and preparing their hearts, but now he begins teaching them in very plain language, language that was not hard to understand. He did not mince words in any way. And he starts teaching them very plainly, the scripture says, at this point in preparation for what's about to happen next. And so he tells the disciples directly that he's about to suffer. And he tells them that he's about to be rejected and he's about to be killed. But then on the third day, he would rise from the grave. Now, when we read these words of Christ, as we see these things as they're written here in Mark's gospel, what internal reaction do we have to hearing Jesus say this or reading these words, uh, these words that Jesus spoke? What internal reaction do we have? Do you think our familiarity with what he, with what he did makes his words a little less surprising to us? I would imagine it does, right? Because we're familiar with what he does next and how this all resolves. And so his words probably don't stand out to us as all that surprising because we know that those things happen. We know what comes next. But how do you think those words hit the disciples' ears? You know, we have the benefit of being able to read the whole story and seeing all the details and benefiting from the things that took place afterward. But how do you suppose this hit the disciples' ears? Because they've certainly witnessed the conflict that Jesus has experienced with the religious leaders and how they're trying to nitpick and find all sorts of things to, to say against Jesus. So they've seen that, but they've also seen thousands and thousands of people flocking to Jesus. Many people with the desire to call Jesus their king. You know, that was on the mind of, of some people. In fact, at one point, Jesus had to step away from the crowd because the, the crowd had in their mind and in their heart to, to make him king by force, whether he wanted to do it or not. So they see both of those things taking place, the religious leaders despising him, but the crowd wanting to make him their king. And I imagine at this point in time, that the disciples, and tell me if you think this is true, but I think it's true. I think they also probably enjoyed some of the attention that they had been receiving because of their association with Jesus. Because they were going out into the towns and villages as he would commission them to do so, and they would teach the people. And they were given miraculous power to heal people and cast demons out and do all sorts of things like that. And so when people would see them, they by virtue of their association with Jesus, I think they were getting a little special attention as well. But now you have Jesus speaking of his rejection. Well, that doesn't sound ideal because I think up to this point, they've kind of liked the perks of hanging out with them and the attention that they're getting. And he says, oh no, I'm going to be rejected. What do you mean you're going to be rejected? And I'm going to be killed. What do you mean you're going to be rejected and killed? We've left everything to follow you. And it seems like it's going well. What do you mean you're going to be rejected and killed? I'm certain that is not what they wanted to hear. And in fact, I'm 100% certain they didn't want to hear that because Peter makes it very clear that he in particular didn't want to hear any part of what Jesus was revealing in this context. Rejection and death do not sound pleasing, right? Doesn't sound pleasing to us on any level, particularly when you're a little too focused still on the comforts and the priorities 
of this world. But when you look at the second part of verse 32, it says this, and Peter took him aside. What a guy, right? Let me take you aside. I got, I got to have some words with you, right? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Awkward conversations with your rabbi, 101, right? Now, it does seem a bit presumptuous of Peter to take Jesus aside and attempt to rebuke him, doesn't it? But that's what he does. He takes Jesus aside. Maybe he feels like, hey, I don't want to embarrass you because you're in charge here, but you need my wisdom right now. That's what Peter's basically saying. It's a bit presumptuous. He attempts to rebuke Jesus because he was so disturbed by what Jesus was saying. So he takes him aside. He attempts to to rebuke him, but to his surprise, he was the one that received the more stinging rebuke. Jesus flips it around. Now think about Christ's mission for a second. Christ's mission was to come to this earth to live the perfect life that Adam couldn't live and that we couldn't live either, and then fulfill all righteousness and suffer and be tortured and be shamed and to bear the wrath for our sin that our iniquities deserved, to then die a painful death on the cross, then defeat sin, Satan, and death through resurrecting from the grave. That was Christ's mission, and he was going to do all of it. But Peter's rebuke of Jesus after hearing this, when you think about it, was actually an attempt to discourage Jesus from fulfilling his mission. And Jesus declared that mindset nothing less than satanic. It's like, if that's where your mind's at, that's not of God, that's of Satan. That is satanic. And so he looks at he's like, you're trying to prevent me from the mission for which I came. I came to this earth to suffer for you. I came to this earth to bear the, the wrath of the Father upon myself so you don't have to bear it. I came to this earth to fulfill all righteousness. This is what Jesus was saying to them. And you're telling me, don't do it? You're saying, don't do it? And he says, that's satanic. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I find it amazing to consider that in one moment, you have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. So out of his mouth says something that looks brilliant. That's a rarity for Peter up to this point. And then in the next moment, he's trying to discourage Jesus from fulfilling his divinely ordained mission to bear the sin for humanity and become the first fruits of the resurrection, as Scripture tells us Jesus became. But I think it's just as amazing to consider that we quite often have the same tendency, don't we? It's a tendency to prioritize the things that seem so consequential on this earth more than we prioritize the eternal goals that Christ has for our lives. We prioritize the just the, the things that matter to us so much in the here and now, we just don't think about the eternal ramifications. We don't think about the eternal goals that Christ has for our lives. For example, let me give you two examples, in fact. On any given day, how often do we think about how much we have in our bank account versus how many eternal rewards we're storing up in heaven through our faithful obedience to Christ in the present? Do we think about that one at all? Or do we mainly think about, it's like, all right, mortgages due at the end of the month. Well, then I got that grace period till the 16th. I think I'll have enough in there. Yeah, I should be good. Ah, gas is almost four bucks again. Right? That's what we think about. How often do we think about what's in our bank account versus 
The eternal reward, Scripture says, will be given to believers for their faithful obedience to Christ in the here and now. We don't think about the eternal side of that equation very often, do we? We think about the earthly side of the equation. All right, how about this? How often do we think about the opinions of our friends and our family and our coworkers and maybe even our neighbors, the opinions they have of us, versus the way we're seen and valued in the eyes of God? Was there even one time this week that we allowed ourselves to think about the fact that if we are united to Jesus by faith, His righteousness has been supernaturally imputed to our account, and we're now seen as holy and blameless in the eyes of God, even if no one else in our lives sees us that way. Is there even one time this week you allowed yourself to think that way, or did you primarily consume your mind with the opinions of your, of your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors? I think we have to be honest about these things when we're looking at this and recognize that it's just as easy for us to be earthly-minded as it was for Peter to be earthly-minded in his lowest moments. We do the same stuff. We think about the stuff going on on the day-to-day more than we think about the eternal, but we can also take heart because just as the Holy Spirit opened up our eyes to recognize our need for Christ, as He opened up our eyes to understand who Christ even is, I think He can also open up our eyes to recognize His Word, to recognize His eternal plan, to recognize what He desires to carry out in our lives on a day-to-day basis, the Holy Spirit delights to do that. And as He opened up your eyes to even recognize Christ to begin with, He can open up your eyes to start valuing things of a more eternal nature if it feels like your eyes are a little too focused on the here and now and the things of earthly consequence. Before we finish up, I want to I want to highlight one final quick thing, and that's a quote from Augustine. Now, educated people say Augustine. I say Augustine, which puts me in which camp, right? Um, But Augustine once said this, and I want us, before I even show you what he said, I I want us to think about this. I think it's a very, very useful quote on many levels, and it's something I, I, uh, I like thinking about. But he he said something that I think is useful if we're trying to transition from being earthly-minded to heavenly-minded. If we're trying to transition from primarily thinking about things that happen in our day-to-day earthly life and not, you know, if we're trying to transition from that to begin thinking about the things that have eternal consequence in the Lord's economy. And this is what Augustine said. He said... Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to his love, and the future to his providence. Just think of that quote for a quick second. Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to his love, and the future to his providence. When you look at it in three parts, trust the past to the mercy of God. Do you ever find yourself in a spot where you feel shame and regret over something from the past? Do you ever feel trauma from something in the past that was outside of your control that maybe happened to you? Either decisions you made in the past that you regret or trauma because of decisions other people made and your mind gets stuck in the past and you're like, why am I here so often? Why am I thinking about that? That's old news. Okay, trust the past to the mercy of God. Trust that to the mercy of God. You don't have to stay stuck in that. Trust that to the mercy of God. What about the present? Trust the present to his love. 
So look at what's going on in your day-to-day life. Right now, do you look at certain circumstances in your life or in your health or in your family or whatever it may be, and you wonder, I wonder how this works out. Like, I wonder how this story culminates. I wonder how it works out. Well, isn't it useful for us to look at our present circumstances and recognize the fact that God does indeed love us? And if He loves us as much as He's demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ, that must mean that in the midst of whatever circumstances I'm going through right now, I can come right back to the fact that, you know what? God loves me. And if He loves me, this has an end that ultimately glorifies Him and somehow benefits me, even if it's hard to go through. So I can trust the present to His love. But what about the future? Do you ever find yourself, even at night, when you're trying to go to bed and you're thinking of what-if scenarios? What if something bad happens in this category? What if something bad happens to the kids? What if something bad happens to me? What if this health need doesn't work out the way I want it to? What if, you know, this circumstance, what if the roof is too old to weather this rain? Trust the future to his providence, that he's pointing all things toward a desired end, and your life is not accidental. Trust the past to the the mercy of God, the present to his love, and the future to his providence. That's a useful thing to think about. If we're trying to go from being earthly-minded people to heavenly-minded people. When Jesus looked at Peter and he says to him, he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, you're setting your mind on the things of man. I need that counsel too. And you probably do as well. I need to be reminded, hey John, don't set your mind on the things of man. Set your mind on the things of God. Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to His love, and the future to His providence. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about the things that that You delight to reveal to us in it. Lord, we're grateful for Your goodness. We're grateful for the fact that we can trust our past to You, Either the the things that we look at, we're like, yeah, I'm not crazy that I did that, or I'm not crazy that that happened to me. We trust our present to your love, knowing that in the midst of what we're going through, you love us, and that can be a reassuring fact to our day-to-day lives, to our hearts. We think about the future, we don't have to dwell on what-if scenarios. We can look at the future and say, you know what, you've got this all completely secure in your hands, and you're going to work it all out toward your desired end. You're going to receive the glory. You're going to work it out for my good, for the good of those that love you. So Lord, we pray that you'd help our minds to start thinking about these things completely differently than what we would have thought of them from the natural sense. Lord, I'm just so grateful that you reveal these things to us in your word, that you help us to understand things that can only be spiritually perceived And that you don't leave us to become consumed with worldly thinking. Your Spirit, He is at work within us. He is present in this room. He is teaching us. He is pointing us to the truth that your Son, Jesus Christ, spoke. He's bringing it to our minds. So, Father, we're grateful for these things, and we're grateful for these reminders today. We commit our hearts to you. We commit our ears to you, our mouths to you, our eyes to you. We commit our minds to you and pray that you'd help us to see, perceive, and believe in accordance with the truth you've revealed. Thank you, Father, for all of these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name.
Amen.